So we coming towards the ending of our second day of practice together. <clears throat> I always find it really inspiring and moving to be part of a retreat like this and just to to witness the commitment and courage and big-heartedness and willingness to begin again that keep us returning to the cushion and to the walking path and doing this practice. And it, it sometimes feels as if a retreat is, is an exploration of how to hold this experience of being human in ways that bring an easing or a greater contentment and a sense of opening and a, and a, a growing sense of freedom. And, you know, we learn that in how we hold the experience of being human moment by moment. We discover the ways that actually move in the opposite direction from that, that make things more difficult, more obstructed, more contracted. And we have this extraordinary chance on retreat, these very unusual conditions, really sort of like laboratory conditions in a certain way to experiment. Okay, how can I hold this experience in a way that, that does bring relief or opening or settling or a deeper appreciation of the simple joys of being in nature, of taking a breath, taking a step. And, and I'd li like to reflect this evening on, on four holding qualities that really uh, the Buddha taught as sort of the four optimal qualities for holding the whole experience of being a human being. And the tradition gives these qualities the name Brahma Viharas. And the word Vihara means a home, means a dwelling. In fact, it's the word that's come to be used to describe a, a Buddhist monastery, a Vihara, a place of dwelling. And Brahma refers, in fact, to, to one of the pantheon of, of Indian gods. And, and so the traditional sort of translation would be something like the dwelling of Brahma. But I love to think of that in more, less sort of exotic terms as just saying, huh, these are our best homes. These, these four qualities are our best homes. They're the safest, most protective, most supportive homes for our hearts and minds. And despite its exotic name, the, these teachings are so relevant and contemporary and uh, applicable, both on retreat and in the daily life for which this kind of setting is practice. And, and some of you will be very familiar with this list and just encourage you as, 
just offer a few reflections on each of these qualities, just to have that experiential sense of dwelling in those qualities as we go through them. Because actually we've, we can notice, and some of you have been speaking about in the groups, that sense of being able to, well, dwell in the first of these qualities, which is the quality of metta or friendliness. You know, just moments of, of actually invoking a, a greater sense of friendliness to the experience of body, of heart-mind. And we can really see just how essential friendliness is in this practice. There was an 18th century Tibetan saint who said, to try to meditate without kindness is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. Uh, and we can see what he means, can't we? You know? <laughs> we could, could extend it and say to try to live without kindness, to try to live without friendliness, is, is simply to fi- inflict hardship on ourselves. And, you know, so what we're engaged in, really, in a certain way, right at the core of what we're engaged in, in, in this practice is a progressive befriending where we are, are, are practicing sort of expanding the range of our friendliness or the range of our willingness to meet experience with a greater friendliness. Cultivating a, a capacity, you know, initially as we've been saying, we meet what's pleasant with a fairly, often a fairly ready friendliness. But, you know, in this practice, we, we start to befriend also those experiences that may be more neutral, that we may, you know, overlook in our uh, habitual or cultural addiction to drama, you know, like, like the sense of the breath or taking a step or simply being in nature and really letting it in. You know? And then we're invited to practice opening and befriending to more difficult experiences. The, the discomfort in the knee or the back or the, the painful thought or memory. And of course, sometimes befriending starts with being willing to tolerate. Do you notice that? Saying, okay, rather than just escaping, I'm going to be willing to tolerate this, to breathe with it. (laughs) And, And the breathing with sometimes can bring a sense of, okay, there's there's a greater sense of allowing this moment to be like this. And this, these are the steps, these are the, we're right on the curriculum when we're doing that. Because we're, we're, we're developing this capacity to remain present rather than to dissociate or to flee into our addictions, which we so easily do in the face of the difficult. Sometimes there's the sense that, you know, we encounter a situation in our life that just feels this, I can't accept this, I can't befriend this. But can we at least 
practice befriending our feelings about the situation. Let ourselves have the, the reactions and the reactivity we're, we're having and breathe with those and give ourselves permission to feel what we're feeling. And, and of course, this is not about um, colluding with situations that are abusive or toxic. A few a couple of people have asked today about the sense, well, what about metaphor, you know, those people who are really doing harm in the world? You know, are we being ex- expected to extend meta to them? Well, this, is, this practice is absolutely not about condoning or colluding with, with harm. What it is about, in a sense, is, is actually choosing not to add hatred to hatred. <laughs> choosing not to meet ill will with further ill will. Noticing that we can wish people well without condoning what they've done. I'm always moved by Jack Cornfield sometimes tells the story of the great Buddhist uh, monk and teacher Mahagosananda, who's sometimes called the Gandhi of uh, Cambodia. And, and, and Jack tells the story of him and his, his monks going into some of the refugee camps in Cambodia after the horrors of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot were, were over. Uh, and going in and people hadn't seen monks for years because they'd been exiled. So here were people in these camps and, and each of them had lost you know, a parent, a brother, a friend, a child. You know. And you know, what do you say? What do you say in that situation? How, how can you somehow meet that situation with words? And what they did was they, Mahagosananda led the monks in, in chanting an ancient verse from the Dhammapada, one of the oldest Buddhist texts. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is healed. This is an ancient, gosh it moves me to, to say it, this is an ancient and eternal law. And, and I love the way Jack describes it. He said they chanted this again and again and again. And people wept and hugged each other and grieved. And, and as Jack puts it, they grieved because the truth they were hearing was greater than their grief, greater than their tragedy. And, and I find that such a moving story. And that, that, that little phrase, non-hatred, is is in the, in the Pali canon is a sort of code for metta. So hatred never ceases by hatred, but by metta alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. You know. and, and there's something I find so holding about that deeper truth, you know, that is, that is bigger than the triumphs and the tragedies. Because we can see that, you know, ill will and hatred are, are toxic. They're toxic. 
You know, so in the tradition, hatred is an anger, and sort of an, an angry hatred is sometimes described as having a honeyed tip and a poisoned root. Can taste sweet at the moment, but actually, it corrupts us. It it erodes our well-being. And as I say, this is not to deny the importance of being able to say a clear and firm no. <laughs> and to recognize that there is, you, you know, sometimes the difficult people in our life, lives and in our meditations, we need to keep at quite con some considerable distance. There is such a thing as wise avoidance. There is such a thing as wise avoidance. Nor does metta mean that we have to like or want the discomfort in the knee, the pain in the back, the difficult memory, the agitated emotional state. But it's just that sense that, okay, I'm choosing not to add aversion to aversion. As Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you can't, he put it very powerfully after 9-11, he said, you can't put out fire with more fire. Just doesn't work like that. And we can see when we reflect in this way that actually this is part of the protective nature of metta. It protects the heart from contracting into the reactivity and ill will of aversion. And the metta phrases are really portable and useful in difficult situations. I sometimes think of this on the London Tube, you know, where, where we're all sitting around and there's a sort of feeling of self-containment and, you know, a certain... People generally have their prickles out on the, the tube, don't they? You know, and, and, and that can be, you know, there can be a sort of edge of fear around. You know, there have been times with terrorist threats where... There's been real fear there. And what it is to, in that situation, when one remembers to practice metta, and just how the experience changes, you know, where you just have a sense of just wishing people well, being a metta sweeper, you know. It's very protective. I used to find this when I used to work in a, a young offenders institution, uh, dealing with some, some guys who'd done some very... Um, violent things and and there was you know little old me and just how helpful it was to remember metta to use metta as an as a protective intention for the heart mind in the midst of quite challenging circumstances really really encourage you if, if you don't already to 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 take this practice and take it into life you know the Buddha also taught it against, uh, as a pr protective against difficult mental states, the obsessive mind, the, the harsh, self-critical thoughts. He compared it to, to, he said, you know, instead of those thoughts, substitute a more skillful thought. And, and the metaphrases are a skillful thought. He said it's like putting a, a good peg into the hole where a rotten one has been. It sort of knocks out the rotten one. And, and, you know, we can't think two thoughts at the same instant. And actually, you know, when the mind is difficult, it's very protective to use the metaphrases. 
just to, to let those turn in, in the climate of the mind. Several of you have commented on that sense of in the midst of this. And metta is a practice for the midst of things. <laughs> you know. And sometimes its most effective practice is a very behavioral one. You know, the, those moments where actually it can be so skillful to offer a simple kindness to a difficult person in our lives. You know, to make a cup of tea for that person at work. Not as a way of ingratiating ourselves, but as a way of just inclining the heart towards a greater sense of friendliness, a greater sense of goodwill. We can see that part of how metta works is to change the climate of the mind. You know, effectively that's what, what it's doing. We're, we're changing the climate of the mind. And that can be powerfully healing of memory, of pain. Because we can see that, that painful memories or painful bodies in this moment aren't uh, somehow separate from the, the, the pain of a memory, the pain of a knee in this moment, isn't somehow separate from the climate of mind in which it's held. You may have noticed this over these days, that when the mind is more friendly, actually the nature of agitation and, and pain is to subside. Because that experience is being fed by the aversion in the moment. Does this make sense? It's, it's a really key, important principle in, in relation to psychotherapy or mindfulness practice in classes, that actually the climate of mind can change how we experience pain very radically. And, how, and even the degree to which unpleasant or difficult memories arise. And this is a gradual and a patient work. You know, it's, it's, uh, metta is, as we've been saying, is a cultivation, something to develop over time. I love the, the comments from His Holiness the Dalai Lama about metta, because you know, he's someone who says, his religion is metta, my religion is kindness, he says. He says, I, I try to greet everyone I meet like an old friend. What a, what a skillful attitude that is. You know? And, and if, when we've seen him, we can see he's doing that, can't we? He, he says, practice kindness whenever possible. It's always possible. <laughs> you know? And... In a certain way, we can see that uh, we need to be good custodians of our own kind hearts. <laughs> we need to take care of them and nurture them and support them. Uh, and this is, this is uh, part of the, the second of these, these Brahma-Vihara qualities, or a, a second one of them, which is the quality of appreciative joy. mudita in the Pali. And we can see that, that this is 
this quality of heart is what happens when a basic friendliness or a basic openness encounters something beautiful or uplifting. In the tradition, it's often been slightly narrowed to just appreciating the joy of others. So that when somebody else has a sense of uplift or joy, one has a sense of appreciating that, you know, sharing that joy. But it's a quality of heart that we can feel when we look at a beautiful view or when we see a, a, a lovely flower on the dining room table that's been put in a vase. Or when we hear a robin sing outside or hear the bird song. You know. Or when we take a breath and just savor the freshness of that. And, you know, this is about, in a very deep way, it's about how we resource a sense of well-being. Because we know, don't we, that uh, our attention has a bias towards what's wrong, you know? And it, there's a negative attention bias. For very good evolutionary reasons, you know, we, we wake up in the morning and tend to scan the day for problems, you know, and easily latch on to problems. And, you know, this was a survival mechanism intended to support our safety in a world of threat. But actually, it's so easy just to let to overlook what's beautiful, what's nourishing, what's uplifting, what's good in the world, what's good in our life. You probably know that, that statement that our, our attention is like Teflon for pleasant experiences and like Velcro for unpleasant experiences. We latch on, don't we? And the Buddha said, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. Really important statement that seems somehow interestingly supported by the neuroscience. You know, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. You know, if I dwell upon more negative aspects of experience, the mind inclines that way. If I consciously choose to cultivate a sense of appreciation for the little gifts of life, you know, for the blessings of life, we incline the mind-heart in that way. And, you know, it doesn't have to be swimming with dolphins, you know. It's, it's the little things we notice. I love that moment. Some of you will have seen the film of um, healing, healing from Within, the film of John Kabat-Zinn, where he's talking about this. And he says, the little things are not little. They're life, you know. And... The little things are not little. You know, the bird song is not little. It's life. The sunshine on the skin. The, 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 the magic of being able to walk. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh says the miracle is not to walk on water. The miracle is to walk on the earth, you know. And we can feel the sort of, almost the miraculous nature of being able to do that. And we know so many Folk in our world would love to be able to do that, you know. But we, we so easily overlook these little blessings. And yet it's in the appreciation of these that a sense of well-being and contentment is nourished and nurtured day by day. The Buddha has a wonderful image for, for resilience. 
that, that really speaks to this. He talks about taking a lump of salt, rock, rock salt, and putting it in a, in a cup of water and trying to drink. It's, you know, it's really undrinkable. You know. He says, take the same lump of salt and put it, well, he says, put it in the river Ganges. Well, you know, anyone who's been to India and seen the river Ganges would know that this is perhaps not something to try out at home. But, you know, put it in a clear lake of water, we could say. And, the, and it dissolves. The water is quite drinkable, you know. And, and this is an analogy for, for, in a sense, developing the capacity of our heart to be with and meet the experience of suffering, of dukkha. You know, the rock salt stands for, for, for the difficulties, the discomforts, the pain of life. So often we come to that with just a cup of water in our hearts, a cup of nourishment or resource. And that actually a, a really, uh, you know, it's a really crucial part of this practice of being human, learning how to hold the experience of being human, it is to make a daily practice of letting the nourishment in, letting the cup expand to a lake, letting our hearts be nourished and resourced and softened and supported. I love some of you have heard me talk about before, James Baraz, who's a wonderful uh, Dharma teacher in America who wrote a book called Awakening Joy. And in it, he describes how he taught his... He had a mother who was in her late 80s and going blind. And she'd had a... As she put it, she'd had a, a lifetime's history of complaining. And she liked it, you know. She, she just said I, she complained about anything. Uh, and James taught her a little practice... And he said, well, okay, whenever you find yourself complaining, just add on the, the end of that phrase, and my life is really very blessed. And she said it ruined her life. You know, she, she, she found that she couldn't, she couldn't, as she put it, quetch in the old way anymore, you know, because she just kept having that sense of, okay, and my life is really very blessed. She was going blind at the time. There's a lovely clip of her on the Awakening Joy website uh, telling the story of this and just how she started really to value the blessings in her life. You know, try it out. And my life is really very blessed. My knee is hurting and my life is really very blessed. You know, I've had a painful bereavement and my life is really very blessed. And, and part of this is about not letting the dukkha in life be the only show in town, you know. And we can feel that in, in the meditation, how, you know, it's so easy to be, you know, if there's discomfort in the body or a painful memory, it becomes the whole of the experience. And sometimes it feels like actually what we need to do is really value the soles of the feet, or really value the sit bones in the buttocks, or the quietness of the hands, or the lower half of the body, because then the, the difficulty is not the only show in town. Yeah, it's held in something larger. You know, we open to the, the hearing the bird song, 
It's, it's a, and my life is really very blessed. You know, there are blessings in this moment, even if it's just the simplicity of being able to take an in-breath and release on an out-breath. You know, at some level, this practice of mudita asks us, the, asks us the question, which story are you going to practice telling? The story of lack or the story of blessings? And, and it takes practice. It takes conscious cultivation of the story of blessings. We, we can see how, how our capacity for, for joy is nourishing of, is, is almost proportionate to also our capacity to be with the difficult, to be with the dukkha. The, the third of these Brahma-Vihara qualities is the quality of compassion. And you know, in a certain way, you know, cultivating a sense of blessing, cultivating a sense of gratitude, which is part of, of, of joy practice. You know, keeping a gratitude journal is often a really, so the research says, one of the most effective ways to deepen our capacity for joy, just to write down three things each day that we're grateful for, you know, as a support also to our capacity to meet suffering in ourselves and in others. And, and this quality of compassion is what happens when the, that sense of basic friendliness meets suffering or difficulty. We probably know that experience of, of meeting a friend and there's a sort of openness. We say, hello, how are you doing? Uh, and the friend tells us of some difficulty they're going through and one can feel how there's a sort of morphing of the friendliness into a sense of care or concern or tenderness towards this person who's having difficulty. You know, the, 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 the tradition, the, the Pali has two words for compassion, one of which means to tremble with. So, you know, that sense when we are hearing a story that moves us of someone suffering, there can be that sense in the heart of being touched, being affected by. Interestingly, the other word in Pali for compassion, so, so this word to tremble me with is, is one of them, the other means to, to spread out, to go outwards, to turn outwards, to do. And, and I really like that because it feels like those two words reflect the two dynamics of compassion, one of which is a receptive quality where we allow ourselves to be affected by experience. You know, we allow ourselves to be affected by the news or by the story this person is telling us or by our own suffering and difficulty. So we could have a, a sense of the receptive that, that feels and is touched by. And then there's the responsive. That, that sense of moving out to seek to help or support or alleviate. You know, the, that sense of compassion, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, compassion is a verb, you know, where, where we're actually, there's that movement or that impulse or that 
prompting in the heart actually to respond in some skillful way. And we can see how these two aspects of compassion, the receptive, if you like, the empathic, we could call it, and the responsive are so connected, so deeply connected. Because don't we find that it's actually the quality of our listening to another person, to a situation, to our own hearts and bodies. The quality of the listening determines the skillfulness or the appropriateness of the response. Don't you find that? You know, it's easy to be quite clunky, isn't it? You know, to start with the sense of the fix-it mind. I can't quite bear what I'm hearing from this person, so I'm going to help them fix it. And that often doesn't feel like compassion, or it's not very attuned to the situation. Whereas actually, when we're really able to listen deeply, what we often find is that there's a sort of spontaneous sense of what this situation needs. Sometimes it needs no more than listening. But sometimes there's a response that actually is really appropriate. And, And... I love, and I, I know I tell it in almost every Dharma talk, the story, this Zen story about uh, the student asking the, the teacher, what is the goal of a lifetime of practice? Which is a big question when we've just spent two days, two and a bit days doing this. And what's the goal of all of this? You know? And the teacher comes back, an appropriate response. And I love that. Because what if what we're doing here is actually all about cultivating our capacity for appropriate response to the situations we meet in our life and in our world and in our relationships? It's in the service of that. Then we can have a sense of this isn't some sort of indulgence being here. This is actually in the service of contributing to the world and to those we love and to those we work with and to our own well-being. And this is all about how we hold, isn't it? You know, we're learning how do I hold pain in the body in a way that feels appropriate and, and skillful and appropriate in a sense meaning alleviating or at least comforting, <laughs> you know? Or how do I hold a painful thought or a fear or a painful memory? You know? What's an appropriate response to it? And there are many possibilities, aren't there? I love those images of the, the Bodhisattva of Kuan uh, Yin. This is one image here. Um, and, and in China, some of the images of Kuan Yin have a thousand hands, and each of the hands has an eye in it. And often the hands are holding an implement, or well, in some of the images, they're holding an implement. So in, in some cases, it's a willow branch to bless, or a a sort of vase of ointment to soothe. But in some of the hands there's an axe or a sword, which suggests that sometimes compassion is fierce compassion, needs to be fierce compassion, needs to be a very clear no, you know. But just that sense that actually when we really cultivate the qualities of deeply listening to other people, to situations, to ourselves, there's a responsiveness that emerges that somehow can be trustworthy can have an intelligence, can somehow make sense in that situation. 
I love uh, there are some some psychotherapy traditions that that talk about compassion as resonance, and I find that really helpful. You know that sense when you're listening to somebody and you're really out of the way. You're not trying to fix it. You're just present for them. And it's almost like you sort of you open. There's a sort of opening of the being to resonate with what that person is saying. I think joy is the same often, isn't it? You know, when you really, what a beautiful day. There's that feeling of resonating with that quality or something uplifting. But with compassion also, there's that sense of resonance. I sometimes think of the heart as being like a like a bell. You know that that resonates when it's touched. If there's an openness, but we also so know how easy it is, you know, for our heart to have rather a lot in it, you know, and to be a bit unavailable, and then it's, you know, and there is that sense of, well, let's be interested in what obstructs the resonance of the heart. You know, what gets in the way? Another way of putting it: what gets in the way of deep listening. Which is a an inquiry, you know, because actually what we can often notice, well, what gets in the way of deep listening is is reactivity, and the stories that come in its wake. <laughs> you know, the reactivity that finds it difficult to bear suffering, or that the reactivity that comes from not being so grounded in the body when I'm seeking to listen. Or the reactivity that comes from forgetting to let go of my own agenda here, and really be present for this other person. Or that sense, you know, which is so understandable, the 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 fear that can come up in the face of suffering, whether it's somebody else's or our own. There's that can be that fear that somehow this is going to intensify, or is not going to go away. And so, what if this practice we're doing, you know, developing this capacity to be more steady and receptive, is supporting our capacity to listen, to be present, to resonate? We, Pema Chodron, compares uh, our hearts to being a bit like a sea anemone. You know, those soft sea anemones that that. You know, they sort of palpate, don't they? And then if something comes near them, they, they sort of contract and, and close in on themselves in self-protection. And it can so often feel like the heart is like that, can't it? You know, Part of what we, we can get to taste at moments on retreat is that there's times when the heart does soften and is more open and available and lets itself be touched. But we also can feel then, oh, just how contracted, how sort of spasming. It's a sort of instinctive spasm, isn't it? How the heart closes in the face of difficulty. And how easy it is when the heart does close for all sorts of self-other distinctions to come in. Don't we notice that the part of what comes along with contraction is often a sense of selfing and a sense of othering. So we can see that in our workplaces, for instance. 
can't we? You know, where there's often a sense of the, the management or the staff or, you know. In society we see in-groups and out-groups so quickly forming. Forming in the face of, we could say, the unpleasant Vedana of suffering. You know, even in our families, amongst our friends. Even in ourselves, you know, we, we can notice or, you know, we can notice how there can be that sort of, the spasm of self-judgment that feels like there's a sort of self-other thing going on where there's an internal judge who, as Mark Williams puts it, never finds us not guilty, you know. And... You know, part of what we're practicing with is not, you know, practicing for is, is not to close down in that way or not to be governed by our closings down. You know, to remember that sense of, of, if you like, common humanity that actually is so integral to compassion. I really appreciate the work of Kristen Neff and others who some of you have referred to who speaks about common humanity being integral to compassion. And there's a, a wonderful Buddhist monk called Ajahn Sachita who, who recommends the phrase, like me. So, you know, you see someone struggling in the street and you just reflect, oh, like me, that person is like me. You know? Or you see something on the news and you say, oh, like me. You hear a siren going past. Ah, oh, like me, you know. I too can suffer like this. I too am vulnerable in this way. We're in this together, you know. This is part of what, in fact, it's part of the, the beauty of compassion and the, the, the joy of compassion, as the Buddha puts it, is, is that sense of reconnecting. We sometimes think that compassion is going to be all heavy. But don't we find, don't you notice in moments of compassionate response that you've either offered or received, there can be a lightness or there can be a certain joy about that sense of reconnecting. Feeling a, a common bond, a shared humanity. Kristen Neff really recommends that as as part of self-compassion. So she speaks about a self-compassion break, a bit like the breathing space, where there are these you know, three parts, the first of which is just to acknowledge, oh, this is a moment of suffering. You know, we're in a difficult situation, struggling with a mind that won't stop thinking, you know, struggling with sleepiness, struggling with pains in the back or the legs or the neck, you know, sense of fogginess, just to say, oh, this is a moment of suffering. Or she says, just say, ouch, <laughs> you know, oh, ouch. And then say, suffering is part of life. This is something, as Jake was saying last night, that we all share. It's what unites us rather than divides us. <laughs> this is the first noble truth. Difficulty and suffering are part of the experience of being human. 
you know, I'm suffering, this means I have buddies, you know, even though I may not be aware of them in this moment. And then the third phase of the, the breathing space, of the self-compassion break to say, you know, may I relate to myself in this moment with kindness and compassion? Because we see that the appropriate response to suffering is not judgment, but kindness and tenderness. Such a helpful practice, that self-compassion break. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. This connects me with others. May I relate to my own experience with kindness in this moment. And of course, you know, our hearts do close in self-protection, in the face of the intensity and just pervasiveness and inconvenience, sheer inconvenience of suffering. And, and we need to have compassion for our reactivity, compassion for those moments when compassion just doesn't feel possible. And yet, we can see that part of what we're learning in this practice and learning here is that sense of being able to be governed by the intentions, even if we can't feel the feelings. You know, that, that's, that's really so integral in the metta practice, that sense of training intention. And the behavioral compassion. I'm always moved by, you may well know it, that passage from Viktor Frankl's descriptions of, of being in Auschwitz, where he says, those of us who were in the camps can still remember those people who went around the huts, giving away their last pieces of bread, comforting others. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person except one thing the last of the human freedoms, the freedom to choose our attitude in any set of circumstances, to choose our way. You know, it's such a, such a powerful holding truth in a certain way. And, and what we're cultivating is that capacity to choose our attitude that brings us back, you know, in little moments, brings us back to the cushion when the bell goes. You know, that may be not what we would choose or feel like, but actually, you know, if we were following our feelings, but actually we choose to come back. We're training, as Jake put it yesterday, we're training our intentions to come back, you know. And, and that... You know, that's, that's the path to a deeper humanity and a deeper freedom. As, as Frankl puts it. And, you know, that this sense of a freedom of not being governed by impulse is, is very much as um, uh, will be obvious what the fourth of these Brahma-Vihara qualities is about the quality of equanimity. So we've had friendliness or metta, we've had appreciative joy, compassion, and equanimity. Again, another word that only Dharma teachers use, but useful word, it, equi-anima, 
So equal-mindedness or even-mindedness, as the, the dictionary puts it, a sense of balance. The dictionary says, undisturbed by good or ill fortune. And we can sense at the end of a day of practice what equanimity is about to some extent. Can't we? You know, you're still here, you know. And actually, that takes a lot of equanimity to sit one of these retreats that is not a spa, you know. Because actually we have that sense of, you know, we're pulled and knocked around by things, but actually we're practicing being governed by our intentions rather than just by our impulses. Or as the Buddha puts it in one place when talking about uh, those practicing this path, faring evenly midst the uneven, you know, guided by intentions. And the, the Buddha talks about this uneven quality in terms of eight worldly conditions that he says spin the world or blow around the world. And for that reason, they've, they've come to be called the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, what's translated fame and disrepute. We could call it good reputation or bad reputation, people saying nice things about us, people saying not so nice, nice things about us, and pleasure and pain. Anyone not get all of those? You know? These, these blow through all of our lives. And what I like about the image of the winds is it just gives a sense of, well, these are impersonal. You know? It's not some personal failing that gain and loss or praise and blame or pleasure and pain blow through this life. This is, these are the worldly conditions. Joseph Goldstein has what he calls his two laws of spiritual thermodynamics. The first of which is that anything can happen at any time. And the second thing, the second one is, if it's not one thing, it'll be something else. You know? and, and we can see just how reflective of these worldly winds that little teaching is, you know. We, you know, just notice gain and loss on a retreat. You have a good sitting, you think, okay, if I just get myself in the same posture and get my head as it was in the last sitting and just breathe in the same way, then I'm going to have that same, you know, it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, things are changing. We, we notice that you can't repeat these moments, you know. And, and, Part of the equanimity we cultivate on a retreat is the equanimity with the changing conditions. You know? We can see in a certain way that um, yeah, I'm just doing a little bit of editing, seeing the time. You, you know, th this is why these retreats are not spas in a certain way. Because the conditions on a retreat like this reflect those in life in a certain way in that some of them are easier to be with than others. You know, that's why there's the sort of getting up early and the greater simplicity because we get the chance to see, well, does happiness actually come just from getting pleasant conditions? Or actually, there's a deeper and more unshakable happiness 
and ease come from learning to cultivate equanimity. Learning to cultivate a sense of balance midst the changing conditions of experience. As we've been reflecting, these, the, it's the reactivity, particularly to unpleasant experience, that lies at the very root of our difficulties. It lies at the very root of mental health difficulties, for instance. If you get really precise, you can see it's often reactivity to difficult thoughts or mental images, unpleasant thoughts, intensely unpleasant thoughts and mental images that drives depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, eating disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders. And, and that part of what we're learning, this is the power of mindfulness-based interventions in our time, is that it's really gone to the, they really go to that genesis point of, of where does suffering arise from? And actually, can I practice a compassionate equanimity in that place? cultivate a greater capacity to feel the impulse but to choose to respond rather than just react to it. Because we can see, we don't need to have had experience of these difficulties to see that it's in the places of greatest reactivity in our lives that we're most vulnerable to suffering. Do we notice that? It's the relationships with greatest reactivity where I'm most vulnerable to suffering. And, and so we are practicing on retreat, you know, being with the pleasant, appreciating the pleasant without necessarily needing to get busy planning how I'm going to get more of it. Being with what's more unpleasant or what more, more difficult without getting lost in the aversion to it. You know, we're, we're sort of, we're, we're widening the, the range of what we can be with and what we can meet with a sense of friendliness and compassion and equanimity. And yeah, this is, the retreat conditions are in the service of this, the service of our training in compassion and in equanimity. We discover that, you know, a, a more reliable and unshakable sense of contentment and ease comes from, not from just accumulating the pleasant and trying to get rid of the unpleasant, I mean, good luck, you know, you remember that moment in the John Kabat-Zinn film where somebody suggests that he says, oh, lots of luck with that one. You know, if, that's, if you think that's the way to happiness, as we do tend to, well, lots of luck to you. But actually what we have the chance to discover is to, to cultivate a compassionate equanimity resourced by a sense of, uh, of, of, of joy is a more reliable path. At least that's the hypothesis that any retreat is offering us to try out. And we can see how you know, compassion and, and equanimity need each other. You know, that, that equanimity is this willingness to allow things to be as they are in the service of enabling us to respond compassionately to them. So just like there are metaphrases, there are equanimity phrases. I care deeply for you, but I cannot control your happiness and unhappiness. I cannot keep you from suffering. Or the phrase, you know, may I accept things as they are, 
or the phrase, this too will pass. These are all traditional equanimity phrases and they have a coolness about them, don't they? Can you feel that? You know? But it's a coolness that is in the service of supporting our capacity for, for kindness, for compassion, for joy. Because those qualities will tend to contract when they meet the difficult, if there isn't a sense of equanimity. You know, part of what we're cultivating, if we're cultivating friendliness or metta for the difficult person, is that capacity to sustain that intention of goodwill. And that takes an equanimity, a, a willingness to be with the reactivity without being governed by it. Does, does this make sense? It's really crucial to see how these qualities are supporting each other. That, that a sense of equanimity, a sense of balance, supports in our lives our capacity to meet ourselves and others with a, a greater sense of kindness, a greater sense of friendliness, a greater sense of compassion. And those qualities of kindness and compassion keep our coolness, our wisdom practice, if you like, connected to the heart. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it so beautifully, he says, you know, what we need in this practice is a very cool head and a very warm heart. And that's what we're practicing here. That's what we're practicing here. I, I sometimes just think of that, you know, this gesture that some of us do at the end of a sitting. It's sort of bringing these qualities together of, of the equanimity, the willingness to, to be present for things as they are, and also the willingness to respond compassionately. And, and some, sometimes, you know, you do this at the end of a sitting, and the sitting, your mind's been all over the shop, and you scarcely found a breath, but yet there is that sense of, okay, there's an equanimity about that. And I love to have that thought, okay, there are so many living beings in this moment who are suffering intensely in this moment. May, may any benefit from this sitting, this practice, be dedicated to them and to the alleviating of their suffering. And, and just that sense of connecting our practice with a wider sense of compassionate responsiveness to this world in which we live. It's a really lovely way to, to end a sitting. So uh, I'm conscious of, of having, uh, there's a lot to say about these. Oh, I've got a lot. So you've been very patient with listening. Uh, I hope you get a sense of these four qualities because they really are, you know, they're the crown jewels of the Dharma. The whole path is contained within them. Friendliness. Appreciative joy. Compassion. And equanimity. You know, and... and you get a sense of how they really can, they really have the potential to hold the whole experience of being a human being. You know, when we cultivate them or let them orient our intentions, they can really support us through the joys, you know, what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, 
of being a human being. And we discover more and more that it is really possible for each of us to live in the midst of the circumstances of this particular life that you're living with a heart that is increasingly loving and increasingly free. So let's just sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.